Dad. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, while Nick's doing that, should we, should we pray? And I'm going to ask you to do something with me as, as I pray for you this morning. And I'm going to ask you to, to pray for yourself that God would speak to you. Can we do that? Maybe you've been a Christian a long time, or maybe you're not even a Christian. You're just visiting church this morning, and that's okay. But uh, we believe we serve a God who speaks to us. And uh, really, there's, there's no point in, um, in anyone preaching if the Holy Spirit doesn't come and illuminate us through His Word. And I believe that God wants to do that. He wants to bless His Word. So will you just pray with me that God will speak to you this morning from His Word. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, God, as sinners, but as sinners that you accept through Jesus Christ. God, I come as a sinner. And Lord, we know that for your Word to bear its fruit, Lord, the ministry of the Spirit must be active. You must illuminate our hearts. And God, I want to pray that as we open your word this morning, that you would speak to each one of us, Lord. That we would leave here today knowing that you have spoken to us encouragement, correction where it's needed, and even if it's a specific word that someone gets here this morning, my God, from your word, let it be, God, in the power of the Spirit. We pray that you would glorify your Son through the moving of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> right, um, well, welcome again, everyone, to church this morning. I am going to be sharing from Acts chapter 6, so if you, uh, if you want to go there with me in your Bible, that would be helpful. Acts chapter 6. And uh, while you're going there, I'm going to read you a little verse from Matthew chapter 10. Because this is a prophecy that Jesus gave, a prediction he, he gave to his disciples, and we're going to see that prediction fulfilled in the story that we read this morning. Uh, this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils. We're going to see a man this morning who was delivered up to a council. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak. For it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. And uh, this morning we are going to remember a man in whom that prophecy was fulfilled. Uh, a man who preached an unprepared sermon that was so brilliant and logical that the only explanation for the sermon could possibly be that the Holy Spirit gave it to him as he was preaching it. In fact, this message turned out to be so flawless in its logic and so powerful in its impact upon those who were hearing him that all they could do was cover their ears, thrust him out of the city, and stone him to death. And of course, I'm referring to Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And we're going to tell his story this morning. I'm going to ask for your um, forgiveness or your grace in advance. Um, this is a rather large swathe of Scripture, half of chapter 6 and the whole of chapter 7 of Acts, and it might take us a little bit longer than it normally does on a Sunday morning. But you're on holiday, you're all relaxed, you can forgive me for that. We don't want to break up the story because actually it is an incredible sermon that this man preaches. 
Acts chapter 6, let's begin in verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the spirit and the wisdom by which he spoke. There it is. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Now, if you're going to understand the sermon of Stephen before the council in his own defense, you have to understand the accusations that were being leveled against him. So I want to just stop for a second and make sure that we do catch that, that there were basically two accusations that were being laid against Stephen before the council of the Pharisees and high priests. The first of those accusations, we read these in verse 13 and 14, um, they also set up false witnesses to, who spoke against him, saying, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words, against this holy place, possibly the city of Jerusalem, the holy city, more than likely the temple itself, which made Jerusalem the holy city, the place where God had said he would put his presence among the children of Israel. So they accused Stephen of preaching in Jesus against the temple. And secondly, and against the law. For we have heard it's We've heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, the temple, and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. So they're basically there's these two accusations. They say, you are preaching Jesus, and in Jesus you said that the temple will be destroyed, you're doing away with the temple, and that Jesus will do away with the law of Moses. Now, we must ask the question, where did the Jews get those two accusations from? Because as with most things in life, error, even though these were false witnesses, most error is based on truth. It's a distortion of truth. And that's exactly what's happening here. Where does the accusation that Stephen was preaching that Jesus would destroy the temple, where does that come from? Well, the Jews had this superstitious belief about the temple, about the physical buildings of the temple. They had had superstition ever since the days of the tabernacle when the Ark of the Covenant was in the tabernacle. They felt that because they had the Ark with them, because they had the temple with them, that somehow God was bound, honor bound, to bless them. That God would pour out His favor upon them in perpetuity simply because they had the temple and, as we shall see later, and because they had the law. There's a story in the Old Testament about the children of Israel. They're living in idolatry as they always did and they were fighting against the Philistines and so they, 
they were losing the battle, so they said, well, bring the Ark of the Covenant. That should be the magic talisman, the good luck charm that we need to win this battle. So they carry the Ark of the Covenant in, and of course it doesn't work, because God is only interested in what is in your heart. And the Ark of the Covenant gets taken uh, into the land of the Philistines. And so it was that the Jews had this superstitious belief in the temple, that that's what brought them God's blessing. And I believe that that's the very reason why God did away with the temple 40 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. In AD 70, the Romans invaded Jerusalem. God had given the Jews 40 years, 40 the time of testing and trial. He gave them 40 years to repent of having killed the Messiah. They did not, and so the Romans came in, they sacked Rome, and they burned the temple to the ground. Jesus himself had said, that the temple would be destroyed. One day he said to his disciples as they were showing him the grand buildings, he said to them, I'll tell you something, boys, not one stone will be left upon another on this temple. And that was fulfilled when the Romans came. They burned the temple with fire. All the gold melted between the crevices of the cracks of the, um, of the stones. And once it had cooled down, they came and lifted all the stones, one off for another, to get at the gold that had melted. It was to the, the, the minutest detail the prophecy of Jesus was fulfilled. Jesus had also made comments like this. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But of course, Jesus wasn't speaking about the temple in Jerusalem. He was speaking about his own body. And that's the point. The body of Jesus Christ is the temple of God. That's why we as the church are called the temple of God, because we are the body of Christ. The temple in Jerusalem was only ever a type, a shadow, a prophecy of the real temple of God, which is Jesus himself, who contains God fully, because he is God. Secondly, where did they get this accusation that the Jesus that Stephen was preaching was against the law of Moses? Well, if you want an answer to that question, I'm going to ask you, to go and listen to Mark Agar's sermons from the last two weeks, because he does a wonderful job of answering that question. But suffice it to say that the role of the Mosaic law was never what the Jewish people in the times of Jesus certainly were treating it as. They were treating it as a badge or a, or a means of righteousness. We have kept all these laws perfectly, and therefore God is pleased with us. And that was never the point of the law. Even in the times of Moses, God never gave the law for that purpose. The law was simply a mirror. It was a mirror in which men were to look and see themselves for the the sinners that they truly were. And in that way, the law was meant to drive us to Christ, to look for forgiveness in a Savior. That's what the role of the law was. And of course, Christ came and He fulfilled the law. We get a unique insight into the preaching of Stephen from the two accusations that were made against him. You know, we don't have a copy of any of Stephen's sermons that he was preaching to the people when he was preaching the gospel. Now, we do have in great detail, and it's a wonderful sermon or speech that he gives to the council in his own defense, but we don't have copies of his sermons. But from the accusations laid against him, we get an insight into what he was preaching. And here's what I see in this. 
the central message of the preaching of Stephen must have been the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, why do I say that? Firstly, Stephen must have been preaching about the coming of the Holy Spirit by which the presence of God now fills the church. The gathered people of God. And that the temple is no longer necessary because God has sent His Spirit to fill His church. The temple was only a type of the new covenant reality of the people of God in the church. The New Testament puts it this way, that we as believers together in church on Main and with all believers around the world, we are the living stones of the temple. And we are... Paul says to the Ephesians, being built up together into a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. This is the overt, clear teaching of the New Testament, that the church is now the place of the residence of the Spirit of God on earth. Not the temple. We don't need the temple anymore. So he must have been preaching that Jesus has sent his Spirit to fill the church. Secondly, Stephen must have been preaching that we can no longer, not no longer, that we cannot and could never have been, be saved by keeping the law, but only by walking in the Spirit. And how do we receive the Spirit so that we can walk in the Spirit through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ? Because all the law can do is condemn, but those who walk in the Spirit are no longer under the law, but are under grace. So, so Stephen must have been preaching the presence of the Spirit in the hearts of believers, which sets us free from the law of Moses. So Stephen was preaching the coming of the Spirit corporately to the church, and he was pre- preaching the coming of the Spirit individually to every born-again Christian making us free from the law. Now, if you can remember those two points, those two points of Stephen's preaching and those two accusations that have been laid against him, it's going to make it a lot easier for you to understand the train of thought that he now goes through in his final sermon of defense, in which he's not really defending himself, he's defending Christ. And it's not actually he is defending himself, it's the Holy Spirit defending him. All of that is happening as he is preaching this message. Acts chapter 6 verse 15. And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him. They saw his face as the face of an angel. (laughs) One of the most wonderful, remarkable pieces of scripture. The presence of God was so manifest on this man. His face shone like the face of an angel. And this is the depravity of man. Within minutes, the same people who saw his face shining like that of an angel were throwing stones at that very face. Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen is now given permission to speak. And as Stephen now prepares to make his defense, he's going to begin with the second accusation first, that accusation that Jesus is against the law of Moses. And as we'll see shortly, what he does is he begins by recounting the facts of history. 
He goes into the history of how the nation of Israel was formed in the beginning and how it was that they then received the law. So Stephen basically says to the council, let's start at the beginning because I want to reason with you council members. You've accused me of saying that Jesus is against the law and that he's against the temple. Well, let's look at the facts. I want to reason with you from the facts of history. Because the facts will show that the preaching that I have been doing of Jesus Christ is in fact perfectly consistent with the Old Testament scriptures. You know, the Christian should never be afraid of the facts. Faith and facts are friends. And that goes in many areas. You can look at um, the histories of the Bible, for example. Many, I mean, the Bible gives us much history of the world. And there have been many people and times throughout the ages where the, the, the histories of the Bible have been attacked. For example, in Luke chapter 3, Luke mentions a man called Lysanias who was tetrarch of Abilene as one of the six historical markers that he gives of when John the Baptist lived. And for centuries they knew about the other five of these historical markers, but then we never knew of about a man called Lysanias. So for, for years, historians said, well, Luke was, was in error. About a hundred, just over a hundred years ago, an archaeologist digging somewhere in the Middle East found a stone or a tablet which spoke about uh, Lysanias, the, the tetrarch of Abilene, who had set a certain slave free, and he lived between the, the years from the dig they know this of 18 AD and 35 AD. Perfectly corroborating the histories of Scripture. The same is true of science and biology, of the origin of the earth, of the origin of life. The more and more we find in archaeology and science, the more the Bible is shown to be true. And this is the approach that Stephen now takes with the council. He says, okay, well, let's look at the facts. Verse 2 of chapter 7. And Stephen said, brethren and fathers, listen. I want to reason with you. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and he dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it not even enough to set his foot on, but even when Abraham had no child, God promised to give it to him, the land, for a possession and to give it to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, the land of Egypt, and they would bring them into bondage and oppress them for 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac, uh, and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, now who are the patriarchs? Just be clear on that. So Stephen has just given a quick history of where the nation of Israel began. It began with Abraham. 
Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob then had 12 sons. The 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. Those 12 sons are called the patriarchs. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph, one of the 12 brothers, they sold him into Egypt. But God was with him, even though he wasn't in this holy place. God is still with him. And he delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan. And our fathers, the other eleven brothers that had sold their brother into slavery, our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And then the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him. Sorry, Joseph called his father and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Now, I want you to notice something in particular from that little portion as Stephen has recounted the history of the nation of Israel. I want you to notice that Stephen has made five distinguishing points about Joseph in particular. And we can read this from the life of Joseph and it is implied in the teaching of Stephen and you're going to see how he picks this up later in his message. Five distinguishing factors about the life of Joseph. Firstly, Joseph was chosen by God for a certain task, a task of the deliverance of his brothers. God chose Joseph for that task as a young man. It was God's purpose in his life. As a young man, Joseph had these dreams about the sun and the moon, his mother and father, and 11 stars, his 11 brothers, bowing down to him as a young man. He was a precocious, arrogant little boy, and yet God had chosen him to be the deliverer of his brothers. Secondly, as a young man, Joseph was delivered from imminent death into Egypt. The brothers were going to kill Joseph. And at the last moment... One of Joseph's brothers named Judah saw a train of Ishmaelite slave traders coming past and Judah said to the other brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother? Let's rather sell him to the Ishmaelites, at least we'll make some money. He was delivered from the jaws of death, imminent death, and he was delivered into Egypt. Thirdly, he became mighty in word and deed. He had great authority in Egypt. He became an incredibly wise and powerful man. So wise was he that he delivered the entire nation of Egypt from the coming famine. And in fact, he enslaved all of the surrounding nations to Egypt because of his wisdom. He was mighty in word and deed. Fourthly, despite the call on his life, he was rejected by his brothers. He was rejected by his brothers despite God's calling on his life. And fifthly, despite the fact that he was rejected by his brothers, sold into slavery, 
In the end, it was Joseph who indeed became the ruler, judge, and deliverer of God's people. Now, I know I went through a lot there, but we're gonna, I'm going to repeat that a number of times through the rest of the sermon, and you're going to start seeing that that becomes a theme. Those five things... That God's chosen man was chosen as a young boy. He was delivered from death into Egypt. He became mighty in word and deed. He was rejected by his brothers. And yet he became ruler, judge, and deliverer of God's people. That theme is going to now persist through the rest of Stephen's sermon. And you have to be looking for it. Let's continue the, the message. Verse 17. But when the time of the promise drew near, what promise? Well, the promise to give the children of Israel the land of of Canaan. When the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt until another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born. So things are starting to get hot in Stephen's sermon now because he's just said the M word. You know, he's been accused of speaking against Moses and against the law of Moses, and he's about to now confront that accusation head on. He says it was at this time when all the babies were being killed in Egypt that Moses was born. And he was well-pleasing to God as a baby, well-pleasing to God. And he, brought, he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out in the river, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. As Moses, and Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. Now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed, and he struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God, had, God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting And he tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed Moses away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian where he had two sons. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, off your feet, For the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, 
Stephen's about to get very serious with the council now. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one that God sent to be ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush? He, this Moses, brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. As Stephen has now recounted where Moses came from, his being elect by God for a certain task, he was pleasing to God as a, as a baby child, that's the pleasure and election of God. He then recounts how Moses was sent off, he was rejected by his brothers, he was then sent off into the land of Midian, and he then comes back, uh, having been called by God in the burning bush, he comes back to Egypt to then deliver his brothers. And I want you to notice here that Stephen has just made the five same points that he made about Joseph, he's just made them about Moses. Stephen says that just as Joseph was chosen as a boy for a God-given task of deliverance, so it was that Moses was chosen by God as a baby. He was pleasing to God even as a baby. Secondly, just as Joseph had been delivered from death into Egypt, so it was that Moses was delivered from death effectively into Egypt. He was one of the children of Israel. All of the children were being killed by Pharaoh. He was put in the bulrushes, and Pharaoh's daughter picks him up, and he's raised as an Egyptian. He's delivered from death into Egypt. Thirdly, just as Joseph had been mighty in words and deeds, so it was that Stephen uses those very words to describe Moses in verse 22, that he was mighty in words and deeds. He was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Fourthly, in verse 27, we see Stephen make the point that despite Moses as being mighty in words and deeds, learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, yet his brothers rejected him. He thought they would have understood that God has chosen me to deliver you, but they didn't understand. They rejected him. Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Just like Joseph, he was rejected by his brothers. And fifthly, just as Joseph had been exalted into power in Egypt and he became the one that delivered his brothers from the famine, so it was Moses that despite having been rejected by his brothers, Moses became the ruler, the judge, and the deliverer of God's people. All five are the same. Now that's going to become even more important as Stephen carries on his sermon. Where do you think Stephen is heading with that? Who, who is the ultimate one who was chosen by God, delivered from death as a child into Egypt, mighty in words and deeds, rejected by his brothers, and yet ruler, judge, and deliverer of God's people, Jesus Christ? Moses and Joseph were both prophetic types of Jesus. And this is the Moses and the Jesus that Stephen is preaching. Can you see the point he's making to the council? He's saying the lives of Moses, the Moses you say I'm speaking against, the life of Moses itself pointed to Jesus. I'm not, I'm not 
preaching Jesus against Moses. I'm preaching Jesus as the fulfillment of Moses, which he was. Let's not get ahead of ourselves because Stephen doesn't make that connection yet. He will do so shortly. But before he does that, he he introduces one other slam-dunk argument in his defense of Jesus. And that is he, he introduces a prophecy of Moses about the coming Messiah. And we see that in verse 37. So Stephen says to the council, you want to talk about Moses? Let's talk about Moses. So verse, verse 37. This is that Moses. You want to talk about Moses? Let's talk about it. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel... The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. A prophet like me. From your brethren, him you shall hear. And whoever doesn't hear him will be destroyed, that prophecy goes on to say. Stephen is saying to the council, if you really are going to listen to Moses, then Moses himself is telling you to listen to Jesus. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai with our fathers. And this Moses is the one who received the living oracles to give to us. So um, Stephen has now said to the council, he said Moses was a prophetic type of Jesus. Moses prophesied about Jesus. Now we've spoken about the person of Moses. Let's now shift gears and let's talk about the law of Moses. Because you're saying I speak against the law of Moses. Fine, let's talk about the law. That's what he now does in verse 38. Moses is the one who received the living oracles, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days. They offered sacrifices to the idol, and they rejoiced in the work of their own hands. And then God gave them up to the worship of the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. And now he he quotes, um, I think it's the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Amos. He quotes Amos, he says this, Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? No, you also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. In that little section of Stephen's speech, he's starting to get seriously confrontational now. Because he's just said to the council that there's basically two things that they have overlooked regarding Moses. You want to make your boast in Moses, he says to the council. Well, there's two things you've overlooked about Moses. Firstly, you've overlooked the fact that Moses himself predicted the coming of Jesus. Stephen says to the council, don't brag in being the disciples of Moses and reject Jesus for that reason, because this is the very Moses that said Jesus would come. And he makes the point that Jesus is like Moses in those five ways. Jesus was delivered, uh, he was was 
chosen before he was born. The Bible calls Jesus elect, precious, chief cornerstone. And he was pleasing to God. At his baptism, God said, this is my beloved son, well pleased in him. He was pleasing to God and elect by God for the task of delivering God's people. Secondly, he was delivered as a baby from death into Egypt. You remember when Herod was killing all the babies in in Bethlehem and an angel appears to Joseph in a dream? He says, get the child out of here because Herod is seeking the life of the child and I will call you when it's safe. So Jesus, just like Joseph, just like Moses, escapes death into Egypt. Thirdly, Jesus was mighty in word and deed. There's a wonderful little verse in this regard. Uh, In Luke chapter 24, the two travelers on the road to Emmaus are walking along with Jesus. They don't know it's him. He's disguised himself and he's acting dumb. He says, what are you guys talking about? They said, don't you know what's happened in Jerusalem these last few days? And he plays dumb. He says, what things? And they say, the things that concern Jesus of Nazareth, and then here's how they describe him, a prophet, mighty indeed in word before all the people. He's the fulfillment of the prophecy of Moses. Fourthly, Jesus was like Moses in that despite all of the mighty works that he did and despite all of the teaching of the kingdom and all the miracles he did before the children of Israel in his 30 years, sorry, in his three years of ministry and in his earthly life, despite all of that that he did, yet he was rejected. He came to his own, the Bible says, and his own did not receive him. He was rejected by his brothers. And fifthly, despite his rejection by the Jewish people, he is the one appointed as the ruler and judge and deliverer of all who will believe in him. So that's the first thing that Stephen says the council has overlooked, that Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses. And the second thing that he says the Jews have overlooked, that's regarding the person of Jesus and Moses. Now he's going to address the law. He says, the second thing you guys have overlooked is that your fathers, our fathers, the Jews, throughout all the generations since the days of Moses, our fathers have never kept the law of Moses anyway. I mean, these guys were so proud of the law of Moses. They thought that they were God's chosen people, so special because God had chosen to give them the law. And they thought that God was smiling on them because they had this law. But Stephen says to the council, effectively he says to them, you people have been a rebellious people from the very beginning. Moses wasn't even down from the mountain from the 40 days he was up there when he got the two tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments. He wasn't even down from the mountain yet and you people had already made a golden calf and were worshipping it and in your heart you'd gone back to Egypt. And for the next 40 years in the wilderness you didn't worship God. You had some tabernacle for Moloch that you worshipped in and you were worshipping the star of your god Remphan in, in that 40 years. And then the next thousand years of Israel's history as they go into Canaan, the next thousand years of their history is just the chronicle of generation after generation after generation of idolatry. That's the history of the nation of Israel for you. A bunch of rebellious idolaters. Now before you get too proud as a Gentile, you are just as rebellious and so am I. I mean, you can see why they stoned him. And 
Stephen says, that's, that's, that's basically why God threw you out of the land. And he quotes that scripture, I will send you to Babylon. He said, in the end, God, so, God, God got so sick of you people that he threw them out of the land. If there's anything that you can learn from the history of Israel, says Stephen to the council, it is that no one can be saved by keeping the law. So, so much for the first accusation that Stephen has defended himself against. And, and he has effectively, biblically obliterated the accusation. Now he moves on to the second accusation. If you're looking at your watch, don't worry. The second accusation takes slightly less time to deal with. The second accusation was that this Jesus whom Stephen was preaching would destroy the temple. And in order to defend himself against this accusation, he's going to do exactly what he did with the first accusation. He's going to open the facts of history. He's going to say, okay, well, let's look at the facts. You think that this whole temple is the lucky charm for you. Let's look at the facts of history. Verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern. Important word that. That he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers, until the days of David. David found favor before God, and he asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. David wanted to build a permanent structure. He wanted to build a temple, because he lived in a house, and God's ark was still in a, in a tent. God said to David, you did well that you would want to build me a temple, but you've shed too much blood on the earth. I'm going to let your son build it. And so Solomon built him a house. Now, this next sentence is very important. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. That is a direct quote from the prayer of Solomon at the dedication of the temple. Solomon said as he's dedicating the temple, and he says, but how can this house that I've built, you, built for you contain you? The heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? Heaven is my throne, now he quotes Isaiah, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? Stephen says to the council that, he says, council members, listen to me. The very man who built the temple, Solomon himself, he said this, that this temple cannot contain the presence of God. We can't control God with our buildings. We don't control God with fancy priestly clothes and all our rituals on a Sunday morning. We don't control God's presence. And Stephen says this temple will indeed be destroyed just as Jesus predicted it will because this temple was only a pattern of the heavenly dwelling of God and it is now possible for every person everywhere to come into the presence of God. We don't have to go to the temple anymore. We don't need a temple anymore. That's the good news of the gospel, that no matter who you are, where you are, what you've done, if you will come in faith in Jesus Christ, you can come into the presence of God. Well, the council will have none of this argumentation uh, they can't contradict Stephen. He's obliterated both of their accusations. 
and he's shown that Jesus actually upholds Moses, he upholds the law of Moses, and that the, the need for the temple was only ever a shadow of the presence of God in the lives of the church and of his people. But they weren't having it, and all they could do was glare at him. And I think Stephen could see, these people are not going to listen to me. I think he saw the writing on the wall. He knew, these are the same people that killed Jesus. They're going to kill me. And he throws absolute caution to the wind, and he just blasts out with one last prophetic declaration against this Jewish council. And he says to them, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and in ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you have now become the betrayers and murderers. You people have killed the Messiah, he says to them. You who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. He didn't care anymore. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he being full of the Holy Spirit he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus had risen to his feet to welcome this martyr of his home. I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and they ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with the sin. What grace. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. As I close this morning, I think it's important to make some kind of practical application, although this is just a wonderful demonstration of the wisdom of God, this sermon. But perhaps it is that you here this morning as a guest, and it may be even as a Christian, that there are traces of the same kind of superstitious belief or you know, that the Jews had about the temple, that somehow this physical temple would bring the favor of God to them, despite how they were living their lives. Maybe you've had that same kind of superstitious view of God. People do this in all sorts of ways. You know, there's, there's something in the heart of man that wants to put God in a box and control him. You stay there in that box, and I'll just do a few things to keep you happy, and then I will live my life like I want to live my life. Something in the heart of man that wants that to, it rebels against the lordship of God. People do this with uh, idolatry. If you travel into the east, or you go to Mauritius, you see these little altars everywhere you go. These little statues with incense burning and flowers hung over them and a little bit of food given to the God. That's nothing different to the Jews in the temple. Because that's saying, I'm going to keep the gods appeased. I'm going to 
put the flowers and put the food and burn some incense and that'll keep them happy and then I can live my life the way I want to. I don't have to submit myself and my life to God. I just keep Him happy with some religious things. People do that with trinkets and little bracelets and people go to Zimbabwe and they come back with a yummy, yummy, a little water god and that's supposed to now give them good luck. Roman Catholicism is full of this kind of superstition. People who believe that just by partaking in the Mass, when they take the, the bread which actually becomes the, blo- the, the body and the, the wine which actually becomes the blood, and they put it in their mouth, that somehow grace is then infused into their body, and now they are forgiven. And now they can go back to their life, Monday to Saturday, and live exactly the way they want to. And that they'll just come again and partake in the sacraments. This, this superstitious view of the sacraments. Uh, they believe in pilgrimages and kissing wonder-working statues. There's a statue in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, a statue of Peter, and the, the, the big toe of Peter has been kissed so many times for the last uh, one and a half thousand years that the, the bronze of the statue has actually been worn back into the foot. Superstition. If I just go to Rome, if I just kiss the... T- then St. Peter will look after me. I can live the way I want to. I just kiss the thing and I'm, I'm okay. Rosaries and sprinkling holy water and burning candles. All the superstition. We put God in a box and we control Him. Maybe that's been your view. People try to conjure up the favor of God without ever submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord. Some people came to Jesus one day, they said to him, what must we do to work the works of God? What, what things can we do? Jesus said to him, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. If you've been trying to do that, it doesn't work, my friend. It doesn't work. God isn't interested in any of that. He's not some genie in a lamp that you control on your own terms. No, if you want to be saved, it's a matter of the heart. You must repent of your sins and you must make Jesus Christ your Lord. Have you done that? Maybe you've made the other mistake and you thought that you could keep the law. Maybe you sort of think of yourself as a pretty good person and You know, if there is a judgment, I should be okay. I'm not too bad. Learn from Stephen this morning, my friend. You cannot be saved by keeping the law. You are a sinner just like the rest of us. But here's the good news. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He didn't come to save self-righteous hypocrites. He came to save sinners. Will you come to Jesus this morning? Will you admit your guilt before him? Will you ask him for forgiveness? Because his arms are wide open. He calls you to himself. He says, come. Come and I will wash you clean of everything you've ever done. Come to Jesus today and be saved. I wonder if we could close in prayer, if you could all bow your heads with me as we close. Thank you for your patience this morning. As we all pray together, I'm going to pray a prayer of repentance and it may be that you've never committed your life to Christ and you want to pray this prayer of repentance this morning and maybe you want to just repeat these words after me. Even if you do so quietly in your own heart, you don't have to speak them out loud. If you want to, you're very welcome to do so. 
You may want to pray this. God, today I repent of my sins. I have tried to live without you. Sometimes I've paid lip service to you without any real commitment. Sometimes I've even thought of myself as a good person. But today I feel my need for forgiveness. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. And that he rose from the dead. God, please forgive me my sins. Today I receive Jesus as my Savior and Lord. Please fill me with your Spirit and set me free from the law which I cannot keep. As you all keep your eyes closed, I'm going to just ask if you've prayed that prayer for the first time this morning, would you just raise your hand so that I can see that? Thank you, sir. Is there anybody else who prayed that for the first time this morning? Maybe you've recommitted your life to Christ. Maybe you have backslidden and you've come back to the Lord in your heart this morning. Maybe you want to raise a hand. Anybody like that? Thank you, sir. I wonder if I could ask those two gentlemen just to come down to the front. Could I, could I pray with you, sir? Would you mind coming down and I'll pray with you here? Okay, if the band want to come up and just play quietly.